and welcome to the eighth episode in the Linklater's Competition Litigation Podcast Series. I'm Heidi Barrett, a Managing Associate in our London Dispute Resolution Practice. And I'm Alex Hannington, another Managing Associate in our London Disputes Practice. Today's topic is the role of factual witness and expert evidence in competition claims. We're therefore delighted to be joined today by Oliver Latham, Vice President at the economic consultancy firm Charles River Associates, who has considerable experience in providing expert economic analysis in competition claims, including some of the most high-profile cases in recent years. Oliver, welcome. Well, thanks a lot. Uh, Delighted to be here. Excellent. Well, let's kick off the discussion then. Oliver, we know that evidence from factual witnesses can play a key role in competition damages proceedings in the UK. Parties are likely to offer up such witnesses whose role is to provide the court or competition appeal tribunal with testimony regarding the key factual issues underpinning the claim and particularly any issues or facts which are in dispute. However, parties will typically also call on expert witnesses to advise the court on specific economic or other issues relevant to the claim. Against this backdrop, we'd be grateful to get your insight as to the role of expert evidence, particularly expert economic evidence in competition claims. Why is it often so important in this space? Sure, it's a great question. Well, I'd say the importance just really reflects that competition law and economics are are really intertwined. You know, strong competition case needs to have a coherent economic theory of harm, you know, which explains why the economic conditions and incentives are there for, for conduct to harm competition. And one also wants to do some careful empirical work to see if the data really backs up the notion of, of anti-competitive effects. And a key challenge we have as economists is, is that pretty much any competition case, and especially in a damages case, you need to analyze the counterfactual, what would have happened if the impugned conduct had not occurred. And by definition, that's something we don't observe that we can't observe. And so we need some form of extrapolation, whether that's statistical work or some other form of economic modeling to understand how things would have looked in that but-for world. And I think it's important to understand that the, you know, the key role of an expert uh, uh, or any expert, but including an expert economist is not just to conduct this sort of analysis, but to really help the court navigate through the issues because our duty is to the court at the end of the day and often the court will see you know very complicated analyses reaching very different conclusions and it's really essential to kind of provide a bridge between these different views of the world and help a judge understand okay what are the what are the critical questions and assumptions that they need to take a view on and help them you know d- decide what the right answer is so that they can they can reach a view and reach judgment Thanks, Oliver. That's really interesting. You mentioned the need for extrapolation and understanding and how things would have looked in the but-for world. I suppose one of the questions this raises is the interplay between expert and factual evidence in competition cases, and particularly the approach of the courts or the competition appeal tribunal in circumstances where there may be a conflict between the evidence given by factual and expert witnesses. Yeah, I think that's exactly right, Alex. And, and this is a topic that's attracted quite a lot of attention in recent years, particularly following the Britned case. So in this case, Britned brought a follow-on damages claim in the UK High Court against ABB, who was a participant in a cartel relating to a high-voltage submarine and underground power cable. So all very exciting. Uh, And one of the key questions uh, for the court to determine was how ABB's costs should be estimated for the purpose of determining any cartel overcharge. And so in this case, ABB had put forward a number of factual witnesses And both parties have put forward their own experts who adopted uh, quite different and conflicting approaches to the assessment of any overcharge. And so the case 
is particularly notable for the detailed evaluation and weighing of the factual and economic analysis, which was conducted at first instance by Mr. Justice Marcus Smith, um, who incidentally has very recently been promoted to the president of the Competition Appeal Tribunal. And so in this instance, Britned's expert had used some proxy variables to determine ABB's costs on the basis that the costs it reported during the cartel period may not have been reflective of the, the competitive counterfactual costs. However, the court rejected the evidence of Britnet's experts and gave greater weight to ABB's factual witness, who said that the reported cost data had not been affected on the basis that ABB's witness would have been closer to what actually happened in practice. So, Oliver, I mean, I think this case gives us some, some quite helpful insight into the interplay between expert and factual evidence, particularly in competition cases. And I think, you know, it shows that while the courts very much welcome the addition of expert evidence, they'll be keen to ensure that this is rooted uh, in an analysis of the relevant factual position and to ensure that economic theory does not override the commercial reality. But I'd be really interested to hear whether you agree with that or if you think that there are any other lessons that we can learn here. Sure. So I totally agree with that. And I see three main lessons from BritNed. The first is the one you've raised, that economic analysis needs to be rooted in the facts and you shouldn't kind of silo the economic and factual work or, or put them on sort of parallel tracks. And I don't think it's just BritNet telling us that. Another good example is the recent US judgment in Apple versus Epic Games, where you had expert evidence from Susan Athey, who's an absolutely brilliant academic economist, but her, her reports were dismissed on the basis that it was just a theoretical analysis, which didn't analyze whether the required facts were actually in place for her theoretical predictions to, to have bite in that particular setting. And to give you an example of, of bringing together factual and economic evidence, we at CRA had a cartel damages case where you saw that prices were not noticeably higher during the cartel, except for a really kind of pronounced spike about a year into the cartel. And the claimants argued that this just reflected a kind of delayed onset of the cartel. But factual evidence was really important to understand that this spike actually reflected a rise in demand in China and a tightening of production capacity in Europe, which was then addressed as sort of more capacity came online and the prices were brought back uh, into line. And by getting facts and witness statements and data on demand capacity and output, we were able to see that this price spike lined up much better with that capacity crunch explanation than it did with the idea it was a delayed impact of the cartel. The second lesson that I take from BritNet is the adage that analysis should be as simple as possible, but no simpler. Uh, the court was unconvinced that this economic trick modeling improved upon just using actual cost data. But I hope that people don't take away from that that sophisticated analysis can never be used. I think it's more of an issue of having to show what that analysis is buying you and why it is necessary and how it's adding value versus a more straightforward approach, which in this case meant just looking at the, the raw cost data that, that was available from the parties. The third message for me is BritNed shows how important it is for expert work to use multiple methodologies and try and triangulate to the right answer rather than relying on just a single single approach. You might have a preferred methodology as an expert, but it's good to come at things uh, from different angles and check whether they're giving you similar answers so that you can be more confident in, in, in the uh, analysis you're putting forward. 
Thanks, Oliver. So it's obviously clear that the courts and the CAT are keen to hear from and balance the views of the party's factual and expert witnesses. A key question for any party engaged in competition damages proceedings will therefore be how to go about selecting its witnesses, and a number of considerations may arise here. Of course, a company will want to investigate which of its employees may be best placed to speak to the issues at hand. This can raise issues in circumstances where the relevant infringing conduct occurred several years ago, as key personnel with knowledge of the issues may have moved on and therefore be unable or reluctant to provide evidence. In these circumstances, the best available alternative will need to be considered. However, while more recent employees could be called upon, the court, or indeed the CAT, may give less weight to their testimony, given that they will not have the same first-hand knowledge of the issues in the case. Yeah, exactly. But even if employees with first-hand knowledge can be located, I think it's really important to remember that providing evidence in court can be a really stressful experience. And I think it's useful to give at least some consideration to this when selecting witnesses to ensure that the testimony provided by the individual is likely to be as clear and as helpful to the court as possible. However, while there are some strict rules preventing lawyers from coaching witnesses as to how they should answer questions put to them on the stand, there are some specialist witness familiarisation providers who run courses designed to prepare witnesses for what to expect from the courtroom and the witness evidence process more generally. And I think these can be really helpful in putting prospective witnesses at ease and giving them an insight on what to expect on the day. Thanks, Heidi. In, in terms of expert witnesses, it'll obviously be important to choose experts who are well-placed to advise on the particular issues or market in mind. Uh, Oliver, are there any other considerations that you think are relevant here? I, I just say that an expert faces the challenge of being both completely on top of the material, but also not so absorbed in the minutiae that they can't communicate to the court the big picture issues that they need to form a view on. So in, in the US, there's a lot of emphasis on having a, a big name professor who may not even read their reports until the eve of trial. But my sense is that that's not a strategy that works so well in, in England. You need someone who's got that balance between kind of deep knowledge of the subject matter, but able to kind of keep their head up and communicate the, the big picture at the same time. Thanks, Oliver. And I think finally, just a, a few quick words on, on process. Now, in the case of factual witnesses, individuals will typically provide written statements to the court as part of the litigation process. And then during the trial, those witnesses will be cross-examined on their evidence by the opposing party's counsel. And the judge may also take the opportunity to ask them questions about their testimony. Exactly. Now, as those of you who are seasoned litigators will know, in the High Court, a new practice direction has recently been issued, which seeks to promote and enforce best practice on the preparation of written witness statements. The essential tenet of the new practice direction is to ensure that the evidence set out in a witness's statement is confined to the evidence in chief that the witness in question would give. That is to say, the evidence that they would be permitted to give orally at trial. To facilitate this, the practice direction sets out a variety of best practice rules, which, recognising that, in practice, it is likely to be the party's legal teams that draft the witness statements for their witnesses' approval, are designed to ensure that witnesses' statements are not over-engineered and do not go beyond the information provided by the witnesses at their witness interviews. Crucially, the rules also explain that, to the extent documents are put to witnesses by their lawyers, this should only be to refresh the witness's memory. As such, they should only be shown documents they have personally written or have seen before. This may be seen by some as a departure from the previous practice and in some circumstances will take careful navigation. At the beginning of November, the CAT issued a corresponding practice direction, which, while less prescriptive than its High Court equivalent, 
similarly emphasises that witness statements should only cover those matters of fact of which the witness has personal knowledge and which are relevant to the case. It also emphasised the need for witness statements to be expressed so far as possible in the witness's own words. Oliver, perhaps you could say a few words about the process for experts. Uh, sure, Alex. So it's a similar process. The experts will submit written reports and there may be multiple rounds of, of reply reports between experts and often a, a joint expert report in which the experts get together and try and distill hundreds of pages of reports into a sort of grid of agree-disagree questions, which the experts each put their answers to side by side to give the, the court a, a way of understanding the key issues and, and where the experts are coming from. When it comes to the trial itself and cross-examination, the key difference is that experts may be asked to a hot tub, and that's uh, less grotesque than it sounds. It just means that multiple experts are questioned by the court simultaneously uh, and by counsel as well can ask questions and they have a chance to respond to one another directly. So the advantage of this approach is you get a real-time exchange of views between experts that isn't filtered uh, by the advocates on the two sides. But some judges I think still prefer a more structured approach where you have traditional cross-examination of each expert in turn. So it's, it's really case by case. Thanks very much, um, Oliver. That's really helpful. And that brings us to the end of our eighth episode. Thank you all uh, very much for listening. If you're interested in finding out more, you'll find lots of helpful resources on competition litigation on the Linklaters website. Our next podcast will be on Pass On. If you'd like to get in touch with one of the team, then please do reach out to any one of us. All of the details are on the Linklaters website. Mm -hmm.